make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast with your hosts, Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin. Alexander, so excited to be here today with all of you and our fantastic special guest, Joel Zwick, director Joel Zwick. Looks like you have a wolf behind you there, Well, Joel. My, my white dog isn't quite a wolf, but uh, <laughs> he's a Korean jindo, or at least a primarily 80% jindo. I don't know what they are. I don't know how I got it, but it's always, I always do hand-me-down dogs. But it's you know, the weekend to, of Halloween, so I just saw a wolf walking behind you. I thought that would be very appropriate. Yeah, no, no, not quite, not quite. God, I love that. All right, well, let me tell you about Joel. Joel directed My Big Fat Greek Wedding, highest grossing romantic comedy of all time. His recent films include Fat Albert and Elvis Has Left the Building. He directed the Broadway production of George Gershwin Alone at the Helen Hayes Theater, and he began his theatrical career at La Mama ETC, I guess that's et cetera, as director of the it's La ex, Mama. It's Experimental Theater Club. Experimental Theater Club. Thank you for telling me that. Um, yeah. As director of La Mama Flexus. He has directed on Broadway, off Broadway, and Broadway touring companies. And he and Hershey Felder have collaborated on Monsieur Chopin, Beethoven as I Knew Him, and Maestro. Currently, he's recognized as one of Hollywood's most prolific directors of episodic television, having directed over 650 episodes to his credit. These have included 19 pilots, which have gone on to become regular series. And previous New York productions have included Dance With Me, which got a Tony nomination, Shenandoah, which Broadway national tour, Oklahoma had a national tour, and Cold Storage, the American Place Theater. He acted in the original New York production of Macbird. He directed Esther and Merry Go Round, Last Chance Saloon, and is it Wojciech, Joel? Wojciech. Wojciech, which is mm -hmm. at the West End in London. That's so fascinating. So he's. I, what I also love is you're a teacher. He's taught drama at Yale and Brooklyn College, Queens College, Wheaton College, and USC. And he is a graduate of Brooklyn College himself. And he's currently directing for the Disney Channel and has been at the helm of Sweet Life on Deck, Dog with a Blog, Jesse, Shake It Up, Girl Meets World, I Didn't Do It, and Casey Undercover. Joel, welcome. I'm exhausted. Oh. <laughs> I gotta tell everybody about me for a second since some we have new we have new listeners. So let me and you haven't met me before, so I'm, no. I'm so happy to, to say hi. 
So I'm an award-winning HarperCollins novelist. I spent a, too many years of my life writing about the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria, Egypt, which I was really fascinated by because the first um, female mathematician scientist in history was murdered when the library was destroyed. Her name was Hypatia. I was a development exec with Lotus Entertainment on films like Just Friends and Peaceful Warrior and um, The Good Night and a bunch of others, Hachi, A Dog's Tale, since we're talking about dogs today. And I worked for Gary Shandling. I was with Gary for a couple of years. We're really close. He mentored me in comedy and I currently have a play about my time with Gary that I'm excited to get out into the universe. So, I mean, Oh, and the one thing I should tell you since you're directors, I directed the um, California's largest touring magic show for a bunch ah. of years. So I know a lot about magic <laughs> and the secrets of directing for magic, which is super fun. I would imagine so. I, I, I love magic. Magic blows my mind. I sit there in awe. I have no idea how they do any of that stuff. And it's truly remarkable because I'm in a career, as you are, where you better know what you're doing. Yeah, you have to know everything you're doing. Uh, I didn't know anything any any magician was doing. You know, I so. had to sign uh, paperwork to the Brotherhood of Magic that I would never divulge any of the secrets. And the Ooh. magician I worked with still wouldn't tell me how some of the illusions work. He would make me he would make me figure them out myself. And of course, ah. always, yeah. And then always you have to make sure that they're not flashing, which means revealing the secret of the mm -hmm. illusion. So that was a big part of my job was checking the angles and making sure that it was you're all not seeing. Yes. You're not yeah, seeing the, the back of something. Yes. The audience. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. So wow. I'm excited to talk to you. You know, also we were before you, we, you jumped on the call, we were talking about how like my whole childhood, you were part of my whole childhood, especially I, in the Gary Marshall universe, you know, with like Laverne and Shirley and Mark and Mindy. And of course, I remember Webster and Bosom Buddies, like so excited to hear about it. You grew up on me. How, how, how It's so wrong minded. It really is. I've gotten used to it, though. You don't you don't get my age without get growing up, knowing that there are people who actually grew up on you. They were there for all those shows. They have generations after you. You're an original generation. There are generations who grew up on Full House and Family Matters and that group. Uh, so, yeah, I get used to it. You know, I had a, a very lucky run of it. I really did. Quite what, remarkable. What, what are you the most proud of? What am I the most proud of? Wow. That's a hard one. Uh, probably, uh, maybe my uh, my Broadway show, Dance with Me. Tell me about well, it. Uh, only because it, I was I was I played the third lead in it. I directed it. I choreographed it. It was all the uh, the Plexus group. It was created out of the Plexus workshop at La Mama, and it was good enough to go to so the Joe Pap picked it up for the Public Theater here in New York. They're in New York, I'm not in New York. And then basically uh, moved on from there. And it finally got a chance to be on Broadway, lasted a year. And I got a Tony nomination as a choreographer, which was truly insane because there was not a single dancer in the company. I was just but, gonna ask if you were a dancer. Yeah, I, I did a little dancing in summer stock, but I have to fake things. I couldn't tap dance because that necessitated actually being able to do it. But when I did Gypsy in Summerstock, I was one of the four dancing boys. And my whole thing was to be able to approximate the steps without actually touching the ground so that I wasn't messing up the count of the other tap dancers. <laughs> so I, so, and I, you know, I, I was part of, 
Oh, so you didn't have you didn't have taps on the bottom of your shoes? No, no taps on the bottom <laughs> of my shoes at all. Soft little shoes they gave me, so I wouldn't make any noise that's whatsoever. That's part of the magic of the magic show, you know. There it is. There it is. Goes. I had no taps. But, <laughs> the show um, must go on. <laughs> yeah, but you know, so I did a little bit of that, but essentially, no. I was also uh, in the fifties. I'm aging myself a little bit. In the fifties, I was in a rock and roll group that basically was doo-wop at that time. You're a triple threat. Look um, at you. It's you worse than them. that. It's worse than that. But at <laughs> any rate, uh, so I was doing, um, you know, my work there at this doo-wop group, which we called the Cosines because we met in a, uh, a, a class in math or something. I don't know what we're doing. But anyway, the only thing worth anything about the Cosines was that the lead singer and writer of all our songs was Carol King. You know, wow, that's yeah. so how did you manage that? She's a pal. Well, yeah, basically, we grew up at the, in the same neighborhood at the same time, went to the same junior high school, went to the same high school. And I think she thought I was cute because there's no other reason she would have put me into that singing group. <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't even hold a part. I was basically desperate to try to hold a part. But essentially, so we sang together for a couple of years and then she went off to develop some kind of a career I heard about. And yeah, uh, I, some kind of career, some kind of career, and I went on to, <laughs> I went on to my own thing. So but anyway, so that's why dance with me is so important to me because uh, basically I had to do everything at the same time, and uh, that was quite a an undertaking. Does the musical element of like your soul come through with your directing? Because so much of it is about rhythm and timing and everything. Very much so. Get on, no question about that. Uh, but that, you know, that, that you build your craft and at some point you have to let the craft go, assume it's there and be instinctive in what you're doing. Mm. You make your choices instinctively. You don't make your choices based on, uh, I need to be in this spot at this time. I need to be with this line at that time. It's not that way at all. You basically just trust your craft. It'll get better as you get older. There's no two ways about that. The problem is as we really get the craft down, nobody wants us anymore, but that's that's another problem. Uh, but, the fact, yeah, but the fact still remains that uh, th that's what you're doing. You're just trying to build craft and then leave it alone. Trust the craft and get on to the moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That was what the Plexus work at La Mama was about. It was based on the work, I'm going to give you names that, who knows, you may know, Jerzy Grotowski at the Polish Lab Theater. He developed this style of actor training, which essentially trained an actor like they were an athlete. Meaning we had very difficult physical things that we had to go through. And the only way we were going to survive this, these elements called the cat, which was many yoga disciplines thrown together, was if you basically weren't thinking about it. You had to just concentrate and you had to concentrate in the moment. And that's what the La Mamba Plex is trying to do, get actors to live in the moment. In the moment. You know, Gary Shandling was really big about that. And big time, I'd imagine so. I yeah. love Gary Shandling. He cracked me up. I was so unhappy that he didn't have a really major career after the Gary Shandling show. All right. Well, after Larry Sanders. After yeah. Larry Sanders, of yeah. course, yes. 
Yeah, he was just, you know, was taken down by what happened in the lawsuit with Brad Gray. And I think Oh, he, the Brad Gray nonsense, of yeah, course. Yeah, I think he had a hard time rebounding emotionally and his reputation from all of that. Um, Got hardship. a bit of a hit, a hit, yes. But, you know, Sarah Silverman in the documentary that Judd Apatow did about him said something so beautiful, which was, you know, he had two big home runs with It's the Gary Shandling Show and the Larry Sanders Show. And then right. he had all of us you know, all the people in his sphere who he mentored. And it was a beautiful way of framing it because he touched all of our lives so deeply, you know. Good for him. Good for you and good for him. Yeah, oh, totally. So anyway, uh, dance with me is my favorite thing. But obviously, I can't knock my big fat Greek wedding because if it's success. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. How'd you get that project? Uh, what did you fall in love with about it? Okay, basically, this is how it worked. Because most of the industry, as you're working hard and showing people that you've got things on the ball, are all about connections. Some connections somewhere, a, some student you went to school with at college all of a sudden decides that they, they become a major star and they want to bring you along because they know you're a nice person and bright and work hard and all that kind of stuff. So they do. In my case, I brought into the television world a poor actor who basically had no credentials whatsoever named Tom Hanks. And I did... Buzz and Buddies. Buzz and Buddies, yeah. So I did, I did the pilot of Buzz and Buddies and, and cast Tom... pilot of Buzz yeah. and Buddies. It's a miracle that show got picked up in that era. It's amazing. Uh, truly remarkable. But we had the, the, the movie Some Like It Hot with Marilyn Monroe, Jack yes, Lemon, and Tony yeah. Curtis, where they were forced to dress as women in order to join an all-woman's band or something. Right. So, the, so the, the world had been around, uh, although I keep thinking that today... Buzz and Buddies could be just a little objectionable. It's hard to say what, but mm -hmm. uh, they, they did their thing. And basically, so Tom and I became very close friends because why? Because we had families. We were both married with children and no other member of the cast of Buzz and Buddies was married. So Tom and I used to get together on weekends and have barbecues or silly little things like that. And then he went on to... He, like Carol, went on to develop a career that I didn't really follow. And then... Uh, Exactly. I, I continued my TV work and it was now 20 years later in the year about 2000, I don't know it was, and I decided it was time to get out of television. I finished my, what they called the TGIF lineup, which was Miller Boyette from Full House to Family Matters to Step by Step to Hanging Mr. Cooper uh, to uh, all those shows and thought, well, maybe it's time to get out of television, you know, get out of television and do something else because all of a sudden, the Miller Boyette years were over. Gary Marshall had made was making features now. They were all doing other work. And I was now relegated to doing three episodes of this show, two episodes of that show. And I just didn't like that. I liked being the director of a show. Yes. So I basically was looking to get out. And I, I was looking at independent little comedies that might be interesting to do. So I sent one that I liked a lot to Tom to read for me. And he read it and he gave me notes. He was very dutiful about that. And he finally said, but what is this all about? And I said, gonna get out of TV, Tom. I think maybe there's a career for me if I'm doing a comedy in independent features. And he said, oh, that's a good thing because I have a comedy I want you to direct and sent me my Big Factory Wedding. Wow. And once again, it's a connection. Yeah. Has, and and uh, the only thing he ever said to me about my Big Fat Greek wedding, he says, do you remember what we used, how we, the fun we used to have on the set when we did Bosom Buddies? 
And I said, of course. He said, just do that on this movie and we'll be fine. <laughs> and that was it. So there was my, I would have done the phone book if Tom had asked, to be quite Aww. honest. But uh, my big fat rating, you know, was a very, very good script. <clears throat> we had to trim it down because of cost. We were allowed, I think, 21 days to shoot uh, my Ooh. big fat rating. It was a four page a day shoot. Most features are done doing two pages a day, one and a half sometimes. This was, uh, you know, four pages a day. But I thought that's where your TV chops really came in handy, right? Very much so. There's no question about it. TV gets you right on the moment. You're just there instinctively. The actors come up with an idea. Bingo. If you think it's a good idea, you you, you do it immediately. You're not uh, thinking about, well, how does it get done? Or how does this? How does that? You just charge into it because the actor just came up with a very good idea. Um, you know, so so that was basically it. And so my big fat Greek wedding, you know, launched me into a few more features. And eventually I was done with uh, with movies uh, because they after my big fat Greek wedding, you'll find out that Hollywood would tend to put you in a box as fast as it can. And they determined they didn't know what it was I did, but they thought, well, maybe it looks like he can uh, he can direct women. And so they start to hand me. Uh, it's like so. <laughs> so they started handing me all these projects and I kept turning down these projects because they were insipid little movies about, I mean, there was even a, a movie they wanted me to direct starring Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen, who I had on, on Full House for eight years. And yeah. I wasn't going to do that. So that Hollywood stopped calling, which will happen. If you stop answering the phone, they stop <laughs> calling. And uh, at that point, my daughter, who had graduated USC and was working in various industries was working for Disney as a secretary to the chairman or something, the head of the thing. And I went to lunch with her and her boss noticed it was me and said, Hillary, you didn't tell me your father was Joel's wick. Do you think you can get your dad to direct projects for us at the Disney channel? Aww. So Hillary calls me up and says, well, dad, will you, uh, will you do it? And the answer was, well, Hillary, will it help your career? She said, I think it will. I said, good. Then you can tell them that I will direct anything that you tell me to direct. <laughs> and that it worked. Bad. That's well, awesome. she, she was, she was the real deal. Hillary's the real deal. I mean, but the fact was that, yeah, I, I had nothing else to do. It seemed like a, an interesting thing. I'd always been directing kids. Full House was all kids, you know, so Family Matters, kids, step-by-step -step kids. Uh, my entire second half of my career was all loaded with children so children are good they're like dogs they they stand where you tell them to stand and they say what they're supposed to say you know so it's not a big problem oh, you're brave there's that like wc fields quote about you know never never act no, with children or animals as very much and i didn't both i had <laughs> i had it all you know but uh it was, it was a good it was a good run it was a very good run but anyway <laughs> I want to talk about your Gary Marshall universe a little bit. Ah, yes, my mentor, Gary Marshall. Uh, I basically came out to California to visit a friend of mine who was at that point um, co-starring in and writing on a show called Busting Loose, which starred Adam Arkin back in 1978. And I found myself near enough to L.A. to go visit him. He got it into his brain somehow that I should direct a sitcom. And at that point, my ego was not doing sitcom. My ego was, I was a theater man, you yes. know? So I wasn't going to deal with that. But I decided that night I got good and stoned and thought it through particularly <laughs> well and came up with the idea that Mr. Big Shot, first of all, you haven't been offered the job yet. Second of all, you don't know if you can 
do the job. And third of all, you, you don't understand whether you like the job. So at that point, my great thesis was just take it. Don't turn down opportunities unless you're choosing between opportunities. If an mm -hmm. opportunity arises, jam into the opportunity, show people you got the energy, the talent, whatever is necessary to drive it, you know, and then, and then do it. And so I decided, okay, so Greg and I went about trying to get me a chance to direct an episode of Busting Loose. And I'll tell you only one story. So I went for an interview with, her name is Judy Copage, who was at that time running current programming for Paramount, I think. Yes, it was Paramount. And I had to go meet with her to find out if she would okay me directing an episode of Busting Loose. So I walked into the, her office and all the interview was, was I said, listen, I have never directed a situation comedy before, so I'm not gonna stand here and tell you I know how to direct situation comedy, but I've been watching for a couple of weeks now on the set, and in my estimation, a retarded monkey can direct sitcom. I said, <laughs> I said you know, the actors know what they're doing. They've been playing these characters forever. The writers know what they're doing. The camera people know what they're doing. If I just don't stand in front of the camera that's shooting, I should be okay. <laughs> so she immediately, she immediately called up CBS and got me the job directing an episode of Busting Loose. It went well enough. And I didn't realize that Gary Marshall was associated with that. And then he, I wound up doing some what they called as presentations back in those days, 10 minute little sequences trying to sell the idea of a pilot to a network. Yeah. And one of them that I was doing was Blue Collar Bride, which became Angie starring Donna Pescow back in, I think, maybe 1980 or something. And uh, the, we showed the, the little 10 minute trailer. At the end of it, this guy comes up to me. I didn't know who he was. Turns out it was Gary Marshall. And he said, listen, I liked your work on this. I think I'm going to give you a shot with the girls next season. I had no idea who the girls were. I just had no idea. It turned out they were Laverne and Shirley. Oh, and sure, sure enough, the next uh, season, I was the helm of uh, Laverne and Shirley for the next two, two years. I did all their shows for two years. And they were a class. Let me tell you, they taught me how, that, how the job is done. They're such great actresses. Fabulous. And they, had this, they knew the system. And it's all about somehow spotting a system and seeing if you can make the system work more efficiently. And the key to, uh, and that's the process. The process is, I see the system, now I'm gonna make it more efficient. And eventually you get the actors, you realize the actors don't need 13 run-throughs of a scene. The right. actors barely need one run-through of a scene. They've been living that stuff. Keep them as fresh as possible. Just give it enough so the writers can see what it is that they've gotten on the floor and can make determinations as to whether something needs to be rewritten, fixed, tightened, anything like that. You just got to give them enough information. You don't want to give them the final product on Monday or Tuesday that they need on Friday because the actors start to get very stale with that material after a while. Let's face it, it's not mind-bending material sitcom. It's pretty simple to understand and pretty simple to perform from people who are being told, this is your character, just keep doing it every week. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of it. And uh, they, they, they took me through it. They showed me how it was uh, organized and how props were critical to actors and how they were less concerned about matching, uh, which you would have to critically involve yourself in a feature. There's somebody, a script supervisor. We have one on TV yeah. too. But the fact is very rarely do we have to worry about uh, continuing uh, props and stuff like that because things are shot completely in one sequence. I'm not doing two shots here, one shot there, and then having to make sure that the cup of coffee is, is exactly this, you know. 
So but, the continuity uh, isn't such a, a it, huge focus. No, it's not a huge problem at all in sitcom because it's all, the scenes are performed usually right through. You, uh, a couple you, weeks ago, we had a writer on from Laverne and Shirley, Cindy Bagel. Ah, later. She came later than me. Later. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really cool. The, yeah, uh, yeah, well, tell us more about it. Because you worked with Robin Williams on Mark and Mindy, too. Yes, I did. <laughs> Legends. Legends. Well, you know, they, they were there at that time. Uh, my belief was that Cindy Williams was the funniest white actress I'd ever worked with. She was out of her mind. And luckily, she had Penny Marshall, who was a rock. Funny lady, very talented. She could direct, as we found out later on. Yeah. She could do all kinds of things. But by golly, she was a rock, and therefore Cindy could just fly. And Cindy was insane. She would come up with things I'd never seen before while we were shooting. You know, you had to be really on your toes. But she was quite exceptional. And, of course, uh, Robin Williams, uh, he, was, he was a genius. Now, I was with Robin early on during his, his coke years. His cocaine problem. He's talked about on on in his stand-up specials. It's That's right. Intense. That's right. And uh, but the fact, other than that, he was a very disciplined young man. Very nice. We always called the director Mr. Zwick, sir. I could not convince him to call me Joel. It was Mr. Zwick, sir. And uh, the only thing I ever taught Robin, because he was Robin, I said, "Listen, go off, do anything you want. Just don't leave your mark." Because if you leave the mark, <laughs> was he a wanderer? <laughs> he, well, he had to stop wandering because we were shooting film. We were not shooting tape. He, he had to stand put. And then I said, if you really want to go off on a monologue, hang in a spot. And he learned that and he, he stuck with that. He realized he could wait for a laugh and then move to the next mark. But it was all marked. It was film. It was not, uh, you know, just flow. It was... Uh, it was tough, but he, I knew he was a genius. And I knew that as soon as anybody realized how they could market him, hmm. he was going to have his shot. I knew that he'd get his shot. And sure enough, he did. Uh, with Hanks, it was a different thing. Hanks was, um, he, when I got, when I went with Tom, he was 21 years old, had done virtually nothing. I think he did three seasons holding spears in Shakespeare companies in Cleveland. And he was in New York uh, auditioning for off-Broadway shows in a cold water flat. And basically, but he had, uh, he was so evolved at 21, he knew exactly who he was, mm. which is very, very critical to an actor. Because we're not asking you to be everything possible. We're asking you to find out who you are, be who you are, show who you are, and we will help you evolve into places we need you to be. But uh, Tom, I, it was remarkable how instinctive he was right there. Uh, remarkable, truly remarkable, and it worked also out. Such fine. a such a chameleon too, because well, some yeah. actors, you know, they, they get they 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 always play themselves, and you know, Tom Hanks is just such a chameleon. He's someone who disappears inside of the skin of his character. Very much so, very much so. But there's certain things that are still Tom it, that uh, he has a very hard time playing mean and ugly because he mm -hmm. is so pleasantly nice at all times. Uh, and uh, I remember one thing, he also doesn't have a good expressing emotion. Not great for Tom. And I remember telling the writers on Boys and Buddies, I said, if you want Tom to, to, be, to, to feel love for somebody, you damn well better put it in your dialogue. Because if you don't have him say, hey, honey, you know, I love you too, it ain't going to come through. So uh, it became, he's grown up, obviously. He's had a few years of experience since then, but uh, <laughs> a hell of a guy, hell of a guy.
Oh, that's so fascinating. Um, I want to talk to you more about your craft and your style. And we have a lot of writers on the call and it would just be really interesting for you to tell us because I'm intuiting as you're talking that you really work with the actors and you play, you work with them and go with them in your style. But I, I want to hear more about your craft. Okay, my craft. <laughs> my craft is, like I said, I, I, was, I was a quasi dancer, a quasi singer and a quasi actor. Matter of fact, I did a show off Broadway. You mentioned it called McBird, which was huge in the in the year of when did we do it? 1977 or something like that. It was huge. It was a big political mess up because it basically stated that Lyndon Johnson was responsible for the death of Kennedy and the Whitewater Papers, which were covered up and all that. But um, I'm not even sure where I was going with that. I got myself into Whitewater Papers again. But essentially, um, Your style. what? Your style. Oh yes, that's right, my star. So I eventually realized that my star was, I was an, I, when I was doing McBird, ah, doing McBird, and I had in that cast at that time, Stacy Keach, Bill Devane, Rue McClanahan, Cleavon Little, and they were just the top of the line there. And I learned after being a year with that show, I couldn't act. I had no idea what these people, how they could do what they did. I didn't have any idea of it. I would appreciate it. I'd be amazed by it. I'd see a piece of writing in a script and say, well, that moment isn't going to work. And this bloody actor would fly through it and bring life and joy to it. So I became an actor's director. I enjoyed playing around with actors because I really appreciated their craft. And so that, that's what I became. That's why I was doing very well with buddy comedies like Laverne and Shirley or Perfect Strangers or Bosom Buddies doing very well with those shows early on because I, as a matter of fact, in Bosom, not in Bosom, in, in Perfect Strangers, they used to call me the third cousin because they were cousins. So I was the third cousin and they would do their work and I would kind of, you know, schmooze around on the outside and suggest maybe it's even better if they, you know, hit each other one more time or whatever silliness they were into. But essentially I let actors play. I believe that the environment you set up on stage is critical to how good the project is going to be. And you've got to allow everybody that you work with to have the utmost input that they can get without driving the process into a halt. So therefore, that's what I always believe. You have to set up an environment where everybody thinks that their input is critical and that you want them to be the best they can be. I mean, the old allegory is tell a camera operator, okay, this is what I want. I want the shot from here to here and, uh, and nothing else. And the operator will give you that shot. However, what he's not gonna do is tell you that while you're doing that, you know, I have a great shot across her to somebody else, which you will never see if you don't encourage these artists to be artists. Actors, writers including, I mean, writers are, are rewrite artists in, 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 in any kind of filmic adventure. You know, you, you, you're, but theater did the same thing. There's legendary stories about Neil Simon. While people were doing the first act of one of his plays, he was in the back row writing the second act or rewriting the second act. So it's, it's a rewriting business. Uh, but anyway, I was a process person, a, uh, liked, uh, liked to set up the uh, setup for things. So I understood what the sequencing was, you know, I was a, person very tied into that. I wanted the most efficient work. And part of the efficient work was knowing that actors did not need three run throughs to get something and they didn't need you telling them line readings, mm. unless they were totally misinterpreting the look. 
the line. Uh, you just leave them alone uh, and let them evolve it themselves. And during a four day rehearsal process, they would get to the place you wanted them to be. But you, you, they didn't, actors don't like it if you tell them what to do. Nobody likes it when you tell them what to do. And if you're confident in yourself enough to basically trust the process, it always produces better work. I love that. I love the trust the process. I'm also a, a process person. And I work mm -hmm. with some people who are product people. And it's mm -hmm. like a very different conversation that you're having about allowing the process to reveal itself and develop itself and, and holding that space for it, the crucible that enables oh, yeah. that to happen that you're really talking about, which is giving people permission to play, to make discoveries in the moment. Gary Shandling was really big about that, was like in the moment, no you'll question about it. Yeah. An, you'll, there'll be an accident. You'll make a discovery. You'll stumble into something. And then it's all about capturing that with the camera. And I was with him during the time he was shooting his DVD extras, where because he wanted to go beyond the show, beyond the Larry Sanders show with mm -hmm. the DVD extras. And so he basically had what he felt was real reality TV with a, with a film crew that was going with him to talk to his friends. And he was just, he was playing with them sure. and he was making sure that the cameras were rolling while they were getting him having real live playful interactions with his friends who were on the show. And it was, it was, you know, part of his genius was allowing that to happen. The, the allowing of the art to happen. He, he broke the rules at that particular point, And that's what made him so sensational in that particular period of time. But he set up a structure where he could play the game quite well, where you're doing a script and your writers here, and I'm writing, doing somebody's script. I don't have the freedom to simply uh, allow actors to try anything they want. My rule was very simply this, is that you will do what's written in the script unless we've come up with something we believe is so much better that we're willing to audition it for the writer. And that's that, that was the rule. Uh, I love that. There's something that's so much better that you're willing to audition it for the writer. Say more about yeah. that. Well, it's it basically you come up with uh, you, ah, th we're doing perfect strangers and it was a pilot. We're shooting the pilot. It's the first day of rehearsal on the pilot and I'm finished. I'm in a five minute break staging the scenes. And all of a sudden I notice off to the side that Branson and Mark are doing comedia routines. They're playing with the ties and snapping the faces and got a whole routine. I don't know how they even knew it together. And I looked at that and I was holy cow. And I called up the writers and I said, you guys got to get down here. You have to see what these two people are up to when they're not doing the script. Mm. And the writers came down and they looked at that and they decided, oh my heavens, they're, 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 these two are physical clowns. We have to turn this thing into a, a, a buddy comedy with physical work, you know, Abbott and Costello, uh, Laurel and Hardy, one of our our guides were Laurel and Hardy. I mean, we even did rip off shows of Laurel and Hardy movies, you know, because we, we love them so much. Or The Honeymooners with Jackie Gleason. Yeah. We did an episode of The Honeymooners, but essentially uh, th that's what the writers did. And they took the whole show and the whole series in a completely different direction than they were thinking they were gonna take it. Once they saw how these guys operated, as we like to say, in a two shot. No cuts, just let them do it. Yeah. I love that. It makes it so alive. When you're in process, it's alive. You're not dealing with, you know, something stuck and dead. It's evolving in real time. And it lives. It oh. lives. And, you know, there are some things that go on that uh, where you have to co co incorporate mistakes 
into what's going on. We had this episode of Laverne and Shirley. Every I was thinking of Dean Martin, as you said that too, because Dean Martin was a king of incorporating the mistakes and he made it so funny and so yes, awesome. Yes, he did. He could, he could live with that, you know, but uh, with Laverne and Shirley, we were doing this roof show. There's always a, in every sitcom that you have to fix a roof somewhere along the way and you send <laughs> your funny people up onto a roof. And uh, so the whole point of this particular uh, improvisation that they worked out a little bit was that they could get up this big, this steep roof if they used uh, uh, toilet plungers to kind of use them as thick uh, ski things to get up the roof, you know, right. stick, stick, no problem. And they had that whole thing worked out. Now in the shoot, Cindy Williams' plunger will not come up meaning she stuck it on the roof and it's stuck now. Now, they, so I just let it go as these two girls were desperately trying to figure out how they could make it up the roof without the use of these plungers, which were critical to getting them up the roof. And they worked it out. Uh, they climbed over each other. They did all kinds of things and it played and that was it. We just left it alone. But yeah, sometimes the, the mistakes uh, play out better, you know. You can't do that too much in full houses where you have, you know, two-year-old children and five-year-old people. You can't do that with them. They got to know that a cue is coming up. <laughs> they can't wait for you to finish your uh, your particular ad libs. But uh, yeah, so um, the, so my process was basically that I was a systems guy who had high energy and loved actors. And therefore, I created an environment where everybody could do their work. The camera operators love working for me because I let them do what they did. And I'd get much better work than they gave other people. And I get camera operators opting to be on my show. There was lines of them waiting. Please, if somebody drops out, we want to be there because it was fun. They had a good time. They weren't being told particularly what to do. They knew 90% of the shots they had to make. If there was 10% of it that they were confused by, I could clarify that for them. Oh, that, that's just so fascinating. Hey, if you could wave a magic wand and direct anything next, what would it be? Mm -hmm. uh, I just, oh, I saw something that I really liked because, and she deserves the, she won the Emmy for, Jean Smart won the Emmy for Hacks. And Hacks is the only thing I've seen lately that I think is clever and sharp enough that I would, uh, you know, but they never hire me for hacks because the world is changing. And right now they go into, uh, if, you, if you have two female leads, hire a female to direct it, hire right. a female to write it. The world has changed over rapidly in the last five years <clears throat> and was one of the reasons I got out of the business. I realized I'm taking up jobs of women. I'm taking up jobs from blacks. I'm taking up jobs from people who really could use the jobs. And that's when I retired. Uh, at that particular point from TV to make room for, and the room was being made. Now there's an enormous number of projects that are being dr driven by, by female point of views or by black point of views, black stories, female stories. Now we were trying to tell female stories during Laverne and Shirley, that's for sure. Uh, but there's always be a, a battle going on because the writers who were 95% male uh, we had one female writer on Laverne and Shirley, Paula Roth, very talented lady who happened to grow up with Penny Marshall in the Bronx. That's how she wound up on the show. But essentially, the girls would always complain to me, women don't do this. We don't behave like this. These aren't the stories that we would tell. So we were not telling women's stories. We were telling men's idea 
of women's stories, right. as we're telling men's ideas of black stories, because I did the Family Matters, uh, which was a lot different, because that was a, a, a white uh, organization dealing with a black family. But when I did Jamie Foxx, or did the Wayans brothers, now we were starting to talk about producers, exec producers who were black, and uh, the world was starting to morph already into those areas. So it's really interesting. Okay, so in the TV world, it's hacks. But what would it be in the feature world? You ever want to do a feature? Uh, well, I just produced a feature that I, as I look at it, uh, it, it was beautifully directed by, by Gay Bologna. His dad was Joe Bologna and Renee Taylor's his mother. And it's called Shango, Shango, Tango Shalom which is a wonderful story. It's been out in the theaters for about seven weeks now. It's the highest grossing movie this summer that was an independent. Oh and it's gosh, gonna go, it. yeah, because it did, uh, that I haven't upgraded my bio. <laughs> <Or something>. <laughs> <laughs> Tango Shalom. Tango Shalom. It's about a Hasidic rabbi who's a loves dancing, loves dancing and his business is going under and he's got to find a job. So he goes into the city looking for a job, no luck. As he's coming out of the train station across the street, he sees this dance studio and they're doing the Argentinian tango. And he kind of wanders over. And as the class is going on, he's outside doing all the dances outside the window trying to capture the dances. When it's over, the instructor brings him in and she, she thinks this guy's the best dancer she's ever seen, but she can't he can't touch her. It's against the Hasidic law to touch a woman that's not your wife. So his problem is, how do I join her in a tango contest if I'm not allowed to touch the woman? And he goes through all his ramifications. He checks with the rabbi. The rabbi has no real answer for him. He then goes to the church and Joe Bologna plays the pastor. No real answer except that you got to stick with your religion. Then he goes to the, the Iman, who's the head of the Muslims, and they're even stricter <laughs> than the religious Jews were. And then finally goes to a Sikh temple, and the Sikh finds out that he, he's got the answer to his problem, that he found out a way that these two could dance together and he would never have to touch her. And he came up with a red balloon. I'm going to put this red balloon between you. And as long as you never touch each other, but just touch the balloon, you might be able to work. So they created this entire thing and actually won That's an award beautiful. at this. Yeah, it's beautiful because it's, it's, it's inclusive and it's about four major religions of the world coming together to solve the problem of this little Hasidic Jew. Love that. <laughs> yeah, so it's oh, a very warm God. thing. I'll so, go see it. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm and it'll be, I think it starts streaming soon all over the place. YouTube is streaming it. So there's be a lot of streaming going on for it, but it's um, it's a wonderful movie. And yes, it's the kind of movie that the re reason I wound up as a producer was because I knew Renee Taylor and Joe Bologna and they wanted me on the movie basically as a sounding board for their son, Gabriel, who was directing it. Oh, that's beautiful. Because he'd only done uh, horror work before. Mm -hmm. And this was decided not Hara. So yeah. basically that was what I was brought on for to basically, if he needed me, I was there for him. Uh, and it's a wonderful little movie. I'm very proud of it. It's one I could have directed, but Gabe was directing it and he did beautiful with it.
That's so fantastic. I, I love that it's so heartwarming. I know that we're right now in a market like where a lot of thrillers and horror are really- And so guns and violence. Guns and violence. And, you know, I love comedy. I love heartwarming. I, mm -hmm. I love love stories. I love happy endings, frankly. Happy endings. <laughs> yes, the old happy ending. I understand that. But uh, yeah, the truth is that, that you're not seeing that much of it anymore. And, but know, that's what I, I do. Uh, I've always been family driven from the day I came on to- uh, well, Full House, my kids, my two kids were extras in every classroom scene. Uh, and not only that, I had Les Moonves' daughter as an extra in the scenes. All the big wigs of ABC and Paramount and Warner Brothers had their kids in those classrooms, you know. And uh, that was, uh, it was, a, it was a wonderful time. It really was. Isn't that amazing? Well, I got one last question for you, and then I'm excited to go to Q&A because I know all the women on the call would love to ask you a couple questions. We're doing sure. okay on time for you? I'm fine. Okay, great. So um, this is a question I ask all my guests, which is who is in your wolf pack? Who are your closest people that you rely on in your career? Well, I am no longer relying on people because my career is decidedly at the back end. But uh, the people that I relied on most, uh, my best friend today is still Andy Robinson. He played the killer in, in, uh, in Dirty Harry and built himself quite a nice career. And we've been together because he was with me at La Mama Plexus. He was one of the keys when I talk about the connective tissue of people. Uh, Carol King gets me involved, meets, introduces to me this guy, Roy Levine. Roy Levine directs McBird. Andy Robinson is in McBird. Andy Robinson's having his own problems. I basically, at the end of McBird, went off into seclusion. I had agoraphobia. For four months, I wouldn't leave my house. My whole sense of self had eroded. And so one day, four months into my uh, journey there, I got a call from Andy Robinson saying, listen, I'm joining uh, at La Mama. This, this guy who's going to do this work of Jersey, Topsky. I didn't know what he was talking about, but I couldn't tell Andy Robinson, who I liked a lot, that I just didn't leave my house anymore. So I basically bit the bullet and we started to go to these workshops together and uh, it changed my life and changed his life. And th the fact is that he is still my key because uh, La Mama got me, uh, you know, all that it got me, got me Greg Antonacci, who got me Hollywood, who got me, you know, it keeps going on and on and on and on, but it's the connectors that matter. So Andy, and who else? Um, that were critical to me. You gotta remember at my age, I've lost a lot of people who were critical to me, uh, but Andy is still around and uh, a guy named Ken Glickfeld, who is, uh, he was me. If I got a job, there'd be like an opening in a college because I taught at colleges, but for scene designer. And so I would get the job, but I'd bring up Kenny as my scene designer because he was he's a scene designer, a prop designer, uh, an actor, a director. He was a talented dude. And uh, I would bring him up and we'd split the salary and uh, he would do the designing and I would uh, work out with the uh, productions, directing this production or that production at, my, at the first college. So Kenny was critical to me because without him, and he was part of the Plexus group too, you know, and brought a lot of expertise to it because that was the experimental theater period of the world when the early 60s were filled with, uh, you know, the open theater and Joe Chaikin and the living theater had just finished its run and we had all kinds of stuff going on there. But um, 
so that was the, the, that period is more important. Ellen Stewart, of course, was massive. Mm -hmm. uh, she's no longer with us, but Ellen Stewart was never mind uh, the head, the La Mama of La Mama. If without her, it doesn't exist. But uh, she was a believer that uh, it was a place for writers primarily. And the writer always had the control of everything that was going on, which was unique in that world because we were starting to develop the, the director uh, artist who basically could take a piece of writing and mold it and shape it and develop stories and do rituals and do all kinds of things. And the writers were kind of, uh, but Ellen wanted writing. She wanted the writing. She wanted the people who were writing for her to write. And so therefore she was kind of critical. And so when I was working with the plexus, acting in the plexus, but once again, there were no roles for me because I wasn't good enough. But essentially, <laughs> I respect that. I always joke my business card should say everything but acting. Everything but there you go. Me. <laughs> I was good enough so that I could embarrass myself. I'd be given opportunities. I wasn't cut out of the opportunity. Oh, courageous. I don't, yeah. I don't have that kind of no. courage. Well, you know, I, I acted in little productions here. I was Coco and Mikado at age 13. You don't do much better than that. But essentially, so I could I could do a little bit of that kind of stuff. But uh, where were we at at this thing? Oh, so. Yeah, go ahead. I'm trying to think if there's any other. Ellen Stewart. Oh, so Ellen Stewart. I was in this play at La Mama, which, which Andy Robinson wrote called Last Chance Saloon. It was the first play he wrote. And I was uh, just stage managing it. One week into the rehearsals, all of a sudden they got a call. Andy and Ellen had gotten together and decided I was going to take over directing Last Chance Saloon. They had never seen me direct anything. I'd only directed one thing in my life for a master's at Brooklyn College, a comedia piece called um, The Three Cuckolds. And essentially uh, they decided they wanted me to direct his play. And without that moment, I'm not a director. I would have never found directing. I didn't know that I had, I was instinctively good at it. I didn't understand any of that at all, but I, I was just saw it and let the actors play and develop things. And I, even though my craft was questionable, my instincts were just the same as they turned, always turned out to be. Let the actors play and trust your instincts to decide whether it's worth something or not worth something. And then, of course, you know, there are people as you get into the business. Greg Antonacci was very important because he got me into TV. Hanks was very important because he got me into feet. You know, it just moves on from, from there. But the people you don't know would be the Andy Robinsons, the Kenny Glickfelds, and the uh, Ellen Stewarts. They were critical to me. That's beautiful. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. Joel, we could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for your sharing your, your brilliance and your heart with us and all of this incredible insight. I had an amazing time. Um, so thank you for being here with us. Well, I enjoyed this. This was great. It really was. I enjoyed this. And just a reminder to everybody, you know, jump on Twitter, give it a shout out and talk about what you've learned there. Tag me. I'm at this is Kaya. Which is and I check out Tango Shalom. It's yes, really worth it. Tango check Shalom. out Tango so Shalom. Excited. It'll be it'll be out there streaming pretty soon. I know you said it's streaming, but like, you know, we're vaccinated and masked and we can also go find it in that's the right. you yeah. can. Okay, well, Thank enjoy everybody. Okay, okay, bye bye. Bye everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe, like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin can be found on Twitter for your questions and comments. 
Kaya at this is Kaya, T H I S I S K A I A, and Sylvia at R Writer. That's R W R I T E U R. Get career training and a free ebook, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.